Chapter Three, Part D of Greener Than You Think. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Greener Than You Think by Ward Moore. Chapter Three, Part D. Mr. Lafassacy removed the tube of the dictaphone from his lips as I entered. Weiner. Although a rigid adherence to fact compels me to claim some acquaintance with general knowledge and a slight cognizance of abnormal psychology, I must admit bafflement at the spectacle of your mottled complexion once more in these rooms, sacred to the perpetuation of truth and the dissemination of enlightenment. Every day you embezzle good money from this paper under pretense of giving value received, and each day your uselessness becomes more conspicuous. Almost anyone would disapprove the divine choice in the matter of taking goots and leaving you alive, and while I know the world suffered not the least hurt by his translation to whatever baroque, noisy, and entirely public hell is reserved for reporters, at least he attempted to forge some ostensible return for his paycheck. Mr. Lafassacy, I began indignantly, but he cut me off. You unalloyed imbecile, he roared. At least have the prudence, if not the intelligence or courtesy, to be silent while your betters are speaking. Goots was a bloody knave, a lazy, slipshod, slack, tasteless, absurd, fawning, thieving, conniving, sloven. But even if he had the energy to make an attempt in a mind to put to it, he could not in ten lifetimes become the perfect, immaculate, and prototypical idiot you were born i don't know how long he would have continued in this insulting vein but he was interrupted by the concealed telephone what in the name of the ten thousand dubious virgins do you mean by annoying me he bellowed into the mouthpiece yes yes i know all about deadlines i was a newspaper man when you were vainly suckling canine dugs are you ambitious to replace me? Go get with child a mandrake root, you, you journalist. I will meet the intelligencer's deadline as I did before your father got the first tepidly lustful idea in his nulliparous head, and as I shall after you have followed your useless testes to a worthy desuetude. He replaced the receiver and picked up the mouthpiece of the dictaphone again, paying no further attention to me. He enunciated clearly and precisely, speaking in an even monotone, pausing not at all as if reading from some prepared script, though his eyes were fixed upon a vacant spot where the wall and ceiling joined. In the death today of Jackson Goots, the daily intelligencer lost a son. It is an old and good custom on these solemn occasions to pause and remember the dead. Jackson Goots was a reporter of exceptional probity, of clear understanding, of indefatigable effort, and of great native ability. His serious and straightforward approach to an occupation which to him was a labor of love was balanced by a sunny yet thoughtful humor, a combination making his company something to be sought. 
beloved of his fellow workers, no one mourns his loss more sincerely than the editor through whose hands passed all those brilliant contributions, now finally marked as all newspaper copy is, dash, thirty, dash. But though the intelligencer has suffered a personal and deeply felt bereavement, American journalism has given another warrior on the battlefield, not by compulsion nor arbitrary selection, but of his own free will. He who serves the public through the press is a soldier, and as a soldier he is ready at the proper time to go forward and give up his life if need be. No member of a sturdy army was more worthy of a gallant end than Jackson Goots. He died not in some burst of audacity such as may occasionally actuate men to astonishing feats, but doggedly and calmly in the line of duty more than a mere hero he was a good newspaper man, W.R.L. There were tears under my eyelids as the editor concluded his eulogy. Under that gruff and even overbearing exterior must beat a warm and tender heart. You can't go by appearances, I always say and I felt I would never again be hurt by whatever hasty words he chose to hurl at me. Wake up, you moonstruck simpleton, and stop beaming at some private vision. The time has passed for you to live on the bounty of the intelligencer like the bloody mendicant you are. You have outlived your usefulness as the man who started all this fuss. It is no longer good publicity. The matter has become too serious. No, Wiener. From now on, beneath your unearned byline, the public will know you only as the first to set foot upon this terra incognita, this verdant isle which flourishes senselessly, where only yesterday Hollywood nourished senselessly. So, rest no more upon your accidental laurels, but transform yourself into what nature never intended a useful member of the community. I will make a newspaper man of you, Wiener, if I have to beat into your head an entire type front, from four point up to and including those rare bold-faced letters we keep in the cellar to announce on our final page one the end of the world. You will cover the grass as before, and you will bring or send or cause in some other manner to be transmitted to me copy without a single adjective or adverb containing nothing more lethal than verbs nouns prepositions and conjunctions stating facts and only facts clearly and distinctly in the least possible number of words compatible with the usages of english grammar you will do this daily and conscientiously wiener on pain of instant dismemberment, to say nothing of crucifixion and the death of a thousand cuts. The weekly ruminant and the honeycomb have found little pieces of mine, written without special instructions suitable for their columns, I mentioned defensively. He threw himself back in his chair and stared at me with such concentrated fury I thought he would burst the diamond stud loose from his shirt-band. The weekly ruminant, he informed me, was founded by a parsimonious whore-master, whose sanctimonious rantings in public were equaled only by his private impieties. 
It was brought to greatness, if inflated circulation be a synonym, by a veritable journalistic pimp who pandered to the public taste for literary virgins by bribing them to commit their perverse acts in full view. It is now carried on by a spectral corporation, losing circulation at the same rate a hemophiliac loses blood. As for the honeycomb, it is enough to say that careful research proves its most absorbing reading to be the throw-away-your-truss ads. Is it not natural, Wiener, that two such journals of taste and enlightenment should appreciate your efforts? Unfortunately, the daily intelligencer demands accounts written in intelligible English above the level of fourth-grade grammar school. I would have been shocked beyond measure at his libelous smirching of honored names, and hurt as well by his slighting reference to myself, had I not known from the revealing editorial he had dictated what a sympathetic and kindly nature was really his, and how he might, beneath this cynical pose, have an admiration great as mine for the characters he had just slandered. You will be the new Peter Schlemiel, Wiener. From now on you will go forth without a ghost, and any revision essential to your puny assault upon the Republic of Letters will be done by me, and God help you if I find much to do, for my life is passing and I must have time to read the immortal Hobbes before I die. In spite of all he'd said, I couldn't help but believe Mr. Lafassacy realized my true worth. Or why did he confer on me what was practically a promotion? I was therefore emboldened to suggest the cancellation of the unjust pay-cut. But this innocent remark called forth such a vituperative stream of epithet, I really thought the apoplexy Gutze predicted was about to strike, and I hurried from his presence lest I be blamed for bringing it on. A little reading brought me up to date on the state of the grass as a necessary background for my new responsibility. It was now shaped like a great irregular crescent, with one tip at Newhall broadening out to bury the San Fernando Road, stretching over the Santa Monica Mountains from Beverly Glen to the Los Angeles River. Its fattest part was what had once been Hollywood, Beverly Hills, and the so-called Wilshire District. The right arm of the semicircle, more slender than the left, curled crookedly eastward along Venice Boulevard in places only a few blocks wide. It severed the downtown district from the manufacturing area, crossing the river near the Ninth Street Bridge and swallowing the great Sears Roebuck store like a capsule. The office of the Daily Intelligencer, like the Civic Center, was unthreatened and able to function, but we were without water and gas, though the electric service, subject to annoying interruptions, was still available. Already arrangements were being completed to move the paper to Pomona, where the mayor and the councilmanic offices also intended to continue, for there was no hiding the fact that the city was being surrendered to the weed. Eastward and southward the homeless and the alarmed journeyed carrying the tale of the city besieged and gutted in little more than the time it would have taken a human army to fight the necessary preliminaries and bring up its big guns. On trains and buses, by bicycles and on foot, the exodus moved. Those who could afford it left their ravished homes swiftly behind by air, and to these fortunate ones the way north was not closed as it was to the earthbound by the weeds overrunning of the highways. 
used car dealers sold out their stocks at inflated figures, and a ceiling price had to be put on the gasoline supplied to those retreating from the grass. Though only a fragment of the city had been lost, all industry had come to a practical standstill. Workers did not care to leave homes which might be grass-bound by nightfall. Employers could not manufacture without backlog of materials for a dwindling market and without transportation for their products. Services were so crippled as to be barely existent, and with the failure of the water supply, epidemics, mild at first, broke out and the diseases were carried and spread by the refugees. Cattlemen, uncertain there would be either stockyards or working butchers, held back their shipments. Truck farmers found it simpler and more profitable to supply local depots catering at fantastic prices to the needs of the fugitives than to depend on railroads which were already overstrained and might consign their highly perishable goods to rot on a siding. Los Angeles began to starve. Housewives rushed frantically to clean out the grocer's shelves, but this was living off their own fat, and even the most far-sighted of hoarders could provide for no more than a few weeks of future. So even those not directly evicted or frightened by its proximity began moving away from the grass. But they still had possessions, and they wanted to take them along, all of them, down to the obsolescent console radio in Grandma's room, the busted mantel clock, a wedding present from Aunt Minnie, in the garage, and the bridge lamp without a shade which had so long rested in the mop closet. All of this taxed an already overstrained transportation system. Since it was entirely a one-way traffic, charges were naturally doubled, and even then shippers were reluctant to risk the return of their equipment to the threatened zone. The greed to take along every last bit of impedimenta dwindled under the impact of necessity. Possessions were scrutinized for what would be least missed, then for what could be got along without, for the absolutely essential, and finally for things so dear it was not worth going if they were left behind. This last category proved surprisingly small, compact enough to be squeezed into the family car. Junior can sit on the box of fishing tackle, it's flat, and hold the birdcage on his lap, as it made ready to join the procession crawling along the clogged highways. Time, reporting the progress of the weeds, said in part, Death, as it must to all, came last week to cold-harboring movie-producing Los Angeles, the metropolis of the Southwest, population three million twelve thousand nine hundred and ten died gracelessly undignifiedly as its blood oozed slowly away a shell remained downtown district suburbs beaches sprawling south and east sides but the spirit heart brain lungs and liver were gone swallowed up jonah-wise by the advance of the terrifying bermuda grass time august tenth still at his post was sunk-eyed w for William, R, for Rufus, Lafassacy, pronounced Lafassacé, prolix, wide-read editor of the Los Angeles Intelligencer. Till the last press stopped, the Intelligencer would continue to disseminate the news. Among those remaining was Lafassacy's ace reporter, Jackson C., for Crayman, Goots, 28. Goots' permanent beat, the heart of the menacing grass where he met his death. Under religion, time had another note about the weed. Harassed Angelinos, distracted and terrified by encroaching Synodon Dactylon, time August 10th, now smothering their city, see National Affairs, 
were further distracted when turning on their radios, those still working, last week. The nasal, portentous boom of the evangelist calling himself Brother Paul, real name Algernon Knight Mood, announced the second advent. It was taking place in the heart of the choking grass. What brought death and disaster to the country's third city offered hope and bliss to followers of Brother Paul. "'Sail all you have,' advised the radio preacher. "'Fly to your Savior who is gathering his true disciples at this moment in the very center of the grass. Do not fear, for he will sustain and comfort you in the thicket through which the unsaved cannot pass.' At last report, countless followers had been forcibly restrained from self-immolation in the Synodon Dactylon, unnumbered others gone joyfully to their beatification, not yet reported as joining his savior, Brother Paul. Under people, admitted to the relief rolls of San Diego County this week, were Adam Dinkman and wife, whose front lawn, time August 3, was the starting point of the plaguing grass, said Mrs. Dinkman, the government ought to pay, said Adam Dinkman. It's a terrible thing. I resolved to send the Dinkman some money as soon as I could possibly afford it. I made a note to this effect in a pocket memorandum book, feeling the glow of worthy sacrifice, and then went out and got in my car. It was all right to digest facts and figures about the weed from the printed page, but it was necessary to see again its physical presence before writing anything for so critical an editor as W. R. Lafassacy. I drove through the Second Street Tunnel and out Beverly Boulevard. There, several miles from the most advanced runners of the grass, the certainty of its coming lay like a smothering blanket upon the unnaturally silent district. There was no traffic on my side of the street, and only a few last-minute straggling jalopies, loaded down with shameless bedding and bundles, coughed their way frantically eastward. Those few shops, still unaccountably open, were bare of goods, and the idle proprietors walked periodically to the front to scan the western sky to assure themselves the grass was not yet in sight. But most of the stores were closed, their windows broken, their signs already tarnished and decrepit with the age which seems to come so swiftly upon a defunct business. The sidewalks were littered with rubbish, diagonally flattened papers, broken boxes, odd shoes. Garbage cans, instead of standing decorously in alleys or shamefacedly along the curb, sprawled in lascivious abandon over the pavements, their contents strewn widely. Dogs and cats, deserted by fond owners, snarled and fought over choice or tidbits. I had not realized how many people in the city kept pets until the time came to leave them behind. At Vermont Avenue I came upon what I was sure was a new nucleus, a lawn green and tall set between others withered and yellow. But I did not even bother reporting this to the police, for I knew that before long the main body would take it to its bosom. And now, looking westward, I could see the grass itself, a half-mile away at Normandy. It rose high in the air, dwarfing the buildings in its path, blotting out the mountains behind, and giving the illusion of rushing straight at me. I turned the car north, not with the idea of further observation, but because standing still in the face of that towering palisade seemed somehow to invite immediate destruction. I drove slowly and thoughtfully, and then at Melrose the grass came in sight again, creeping down from Los Feliz. I turned back toward the Civic Center. It would not be more than a couple of days at most now, 
before even downtown was gone. End of chapter 3, part D